This week on Life and Faith. We face wildernesses when we lose jobs, when our, all our dearest dreams go down the gurgler. We tend to think that they're the times when nothing good could possibly happen. And yet it's those wildernesses that bring out the very best in us. We have this sense that we've got to always say yes to every opportunity. And of course in politics there is a real tendency to be looking for the decision that gives you the media hit. Definitions of human nature affect who counts as human. Welcome to Life and Faith. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Now, that voice you heard, that's Abbas Hilda Scott from Jamboree Abbey on the south coast of New South Wales, where Justine spent some time at a recent retreat. I want to hear a bit more about that, Justine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll hear from Mother Hilda a little bit later. But first up on Life and Faith, is there a spirituality to wild places? Now, this isn't a real question because I think I already know the answer, Justine. You you have a sense of this too, (laughs) don't you? Uh, And I wouldn't be alone in feeling like there is. There's a sort of sense. Lots of people have this, that they're out in the wild to the extent that we don't often get there. But when we do, there is often a spirituality to it. I would say I experienced this in the ocean. You know, I'm a surfer, as I seem Mm -hmm. to tell people a lot on this program. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sort of a surfer. But I do it a lot, and and I just love it. It does feel like something's feeding your soul in that place. Other people love hiking up great big mountains. That's not so much my thing. But, you know, there is a definite spirituality to this, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I like uh, if I head to the Blue Mountains and I stand at the edge of a cliff and all you see outside there is just mountains in the distance and mist and you can hear birds. And there is really the presence of something. It's not simply just the absence of noise of cars, let's say, but it's almost like if you pay attention and you still yourself long enough, Mm. there's something there that is wanting to be known and maybe even grasped by you. And then there's that weird sense, I think, that you're also grasped by something bigger than yourself. I mean, I really think that people can understand that feeling that there is something there, even if they don't know exactly what that is and whether they want to call it, you know, God or just the feeling of being human Mm. uh, in the world. And Look, I think um, modern life conspires against us to have that feeling very often, which is why we hunger for it, don't we? We love to get out and there's that whole sort of which becomes almost mythical of the, the Australian, you know, out in the wild. And the rugged outback. Yeah. <laughs> buying the um, four-wheel drive that rarely gets, you know, off the tar. Um, <laughs> just then the American writer, we've been talking about this, Henry David Thoreau, wrote that we need the tonic of wildness. This is interesting, isn't it? The tonic of wildness. And he talked about, you know, the mystery of the infinitely wild, the unfathomed vastness of the world. He says that we need to witness our own limits transgressed. I love that. It's a really provocative thought, isn't it? Because mm. it's just that idea. I suppose what you were saying about the we live in the city and often we are centering our own experience. You know, we've got our to do list, trying to run around, get things done. And yet, Being in the wild, being in wild spaces just helps us to go, actually, it's not all about me. Mm. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Good lesson. (laughs) Good to be reminded of that. Now, Thoreau spent two years, two months and two days in a cabin in the woods in Massachusetts. 
And his reflections on simple living, spirituality, and getting back to nature were published uh, as Walden or A Life in the Woods, a very influential and famous. Now, there is something to what he says here, even if you don't want to take it quite to the extremes that he did. No, and I think that, you know, when he talked about that need for us to have our limits transgressed, I mean, this really hit home for me during lockdown and where, you know, I especially in 2021 when all of, for several months, three or four months, uh, we were confined to our homes Mm. and had only a five-kilometre radius with which we could go out. And my suburb was quite landlocked. Mm. But what I really wanted was to just see the ocean and see a long view of the horizon where I could feel like even if I was hemmed into my house for 23 hours a day with two kids, you know. <laughs> we still feel bad for this. <laughs> that there was some possibility of something big out in the world and something much bigger than even this terrifyingly small experience. Have you been able to experience some of this since as a tonic? Not as much as I would like. Yeah, I think that... be pushing you in this direction. No, that's right. I think that the, the world and my agendas for what I want to do kind of rush back in quite quickly to fill that, right, as soon as the opportunity presented itself. But there was something about that that I'm like, I'm trying to keep that at the forefront of my mind. So this episode is a kind of way of, of doing that. a function of that, right? Yeah, because uh, a couple of months ago, I came across this article written by a woman who took up ocean swimming in lockdown, and I wanted to talk to her about it. And it turns out that Dr. Eleanor Limprecht is an author. She's originally from the United States, but she's lived in Australia for a long time. She also teaches creative writing at UTS, and she'd just published her fourth novel, The Coast, and she actually finished writing that during lockdown. So. Mm. Finishing writing a book during lockdown. Now, is this you know either the best time to write or the worst? It's hard to tell. Can, <laughs> can you tell, though? I imagine the time that she wrote the book comes through in the story, does it? Well, it's strange, right? Because she's written this article about ocean swimming and how this is like a reprieve and a freedom during lockdown. Mm. And in this novel, there's a particular role that swimming plays, I suppose, and we'll hear a bit about that. But basically, this novel, The Coast, is set in the 1900s. The main character is a young girl called Alice, who's nine years old, and she's sent to live in a lazaret, a leper colony, at the Coast Hospital. Hmm. Now, it turns out the Coast Hospital is what today we call Prince Henry Hospital in Little Bay in Sydney. And uh, originally it was a hospital for infectious diseases. This is historical fiction, but it has some grounding in reality. And the novel is about infectious disease and the practice of isolating the sick from the healthy. So there are some resonances (laughs) (laughs) with, with this era of COVID that we've just lived through. The parallels are amazing. So... Today, let's first head to the sea. That seems like a good plan. Dr. Eleanor Limprecht really hated swimming as a child, but she'd injured herself running and her running group wanted her to give ocean swimming a go. Here she is remembering that first swim. It was at Little Bay and it was a really choppy day, um, which I think we didn't do our research very well that day. And even... The women in my group were a little like, are we sure we want to do this? And I was very terrified, but I also thought, well, I might as well do this. And I do like to do things that scare me a little bit. So I did go in and um, 
And then I panicked a little bit too. I only swam one length of the beach that day and it's not a big beach at Little Bay. And my friends swam back and forth. But when they got out, they were so excited. They were like, you did it. And I just thought, oh, I guess I did do something that was pretty out of my comfort zone. And yeah, and from then everything got easier because that was a terrible day to swim. It was so choppy and windy and cold. Well, I think you would be forgiven for ticking that off your to-do list and saying, well, I've done that. <laughs> I don't need to keep doing it. But you made it a bit of a habit. Is that right? During lockdown? Yes, we go maybe once a week. So not as much as I would run normally. But once a week, it was a great way to be out in the ocean. And I realized it's actually, you feel better after a swim than just about anything else. I can't think of many things. I I know the sort of adrenaline you get from running is one thing, but it's a completely different thing. I think particularly cold water swimming does make you feel really great once you're out of the water. It's really interesting that you say that your first swim was in Little Bay, because of course, this is very familiar a very familiar setting given the setting of your novel, The Coast. Did your ocean swims kind of spill over into how you were writing about the ocean in the coast? They did. Yeah, it was, uh, Little Bay is just up the road from us. So it is among the sort of accessible beaches to us. And it's a beautiful, most of the time, calm one to swim at. And I did try to go there quite a bit when I was writing this book. And during lockdown, it really changed my perception of it, because it is isolated, it is really um, unique in its kind of isolation. Um, It feels like you're in a different world. And I could imagine myself there, even though it's full now of apartments, and it's very different than it would have looked at the time. In the water, you know, the ocean looks similar. There are little remnants. There's a little wall of the men's lazarette that's still there on the northern end of the beach, where, which was called the leper beach. And the nurse's um, pool, you can still see the rocks from that. So when you look at the sandstone and the cliff edges and the natural environment around there, it is how it was. And there was actually a golf course there as well um, when it was a hospital. So in that way, that landscape was recognisable too. Yeah, I'm struck by um, what you say at the end of the book in your acknowledgements about how um, living through COVID and the subject of this novel is about the stigma of leprosy and the isolation that is seen as the way to at least keep the sick or the leprous at bay. So confined to Lazarus in this beautiful but quite wild and isolated place. So tell me about how your thoughts around COVID and isolation and stigma, because even though this is an historical novel, it's very much bound up with the present, it feels as though, given that this was the time that you wrote it. Yes, and I didn't realise that at all. But um, as COVID came and we were we were isolated and we were closed in to our five kilometre radius and we became afraid of touching people, we became afraid of touching our groceries or our mail. You know, we didn't know. And it, it brought home for me what it means to fear what we don't know. And that was so much of what happened around leprosy. There were so many unknowns and 
the fear around it was really about it being an unknown thing. And the fear around COVID was around that too for quite a long time as well. It gave me a sense of um, of the kind of way that we blame the other as well. I think that that was really significant both in leprosy and in COVID times. You know, looked overseas and blamed other countries for bringing it into us. So I did gain a perspective that I didn't have on my novel, absolutely. I think it gave me so much... Um, of a deeper connection to it. And then I feel like as well, it's allowed readers to kind of enter that world more easily. Having lived through the history of a disease that, you know, changed the way that we live. Absolutely. And I'm struck by, I suppose, the parallels, whether they were intended or not, I don't know. But how during lockdown, you found some sort of reprieve in the ocean swimming and also you've got your characters, Alice, who's experiencing leprosy, and as well as one of her doctors, who loves taking a daily swim, or I, I believe he tries to do that as much as possible. What does the ocean represent? It seems like it, it will freedom, perhaps. What else does the ocean represent, both in the novel and maybe more broadly? Yes, um, it does represent freedom for them. And solace, I think that that idea of wild places giving solace in a sort of world that's bound up in these limitations is one that that I definitely was thinking of as I was writing it. Um, I've always found solace in natural beauty and Little Bay is such a beautiful place that I, I think that one couldn't not find that in a way, particularly if you have all of these limitations of your life, if you're not allowed out of there. Um, I still think you can recognize the beauty in the natural world and in what you do have. I think there's something to be said for like long views as well. You know, looking out to the ocean is one of those things that you have this kind of limitless expanse of a view. And there's something about that that is calming or healing or, you know, maybe all of those things. It settles the mind when there's a lot happening. Is the ocean a spiritual place for you? It's funny. I never used to think it was. Um, I was always a mountain person and I would have chosen mountains over the ocean. But I always have loved a long kind of limitless view I really like hiking, so I think that's why I like mountains, because um, I like that sense of going up somewhere and looking out. But I've lived by the ocean now for 15 years, and it's grown on me, <laughs> and I do. <laughs> I am an ocean person now, and we lived in the U.S. for a year in 2019 before the pandemic, and um, that was one of the things I missed the most was the ocean. Well, even if we're talking about the ocean or about mountains as well, what is it about these places? You've been speaking about wild places and solace and healing. Are there spiritual resonances in your connection to these places of wild beauty? I think it's a search for silence. You know, there is probably a spiritual resonance there. It's a search for sort of turning away from all of the busyness of our urban lives and 
And rather than looking at everything that's really close to you, looking out um, and feeling really small, I think that's another thing. Like we're surrounded by things that center us, you know, that center humans and social media makes us see ourselves as larger than we than we are as does being a writer I think writing is like it becomes almost like too much ego at times so being out in those places where there's none of that where you feel really small and insignificant is an excellent contrast which I really crave which I seek out because I think I get caught up in the spiral of, am I doing enough? Am I succeeding? Am I raising my children the right way? Am I, am I um, doing enough at work and all of these things? But you don't feel like those matter as much in, in those sorts of places. How has your ocean swim, how has it helped you inhabit places differently? Because when you're maybe walking along the beach, that's one type of way of experiencing a place. But then swimming is yet another. How have your swims helped you to, to kind of cultivate that attention to place? The ocean looks really different when you're in it. Anyone who's jumped in the ocean knows it looks completely different from outside of it than inside of it. And I do think that's a metaphor for all of our you know, everything we do, it looks different from the outside and you don't know until you've gone into it. Um, and then it looks different again, you know, looking up from from underneath the water at the surface of it. And I would never have thought that I wouldn't be afraid of it. But, you know, now when I go in there, if it's not really rough, I don't feel fear. Um, I feel just a sense of wonder at it. You're listening to Life and Faith, and we've just heard a bit from Justine's chat with Dr. Eleanor Limprecht, lover of ocean swimming and author of the novel The Coast. And we hope to bring you the rest of that conversation in a future episode. But for now, we're going to shift gears a bit. We're continuing with the theme of wild places and the search for silence. But now with Abbess Hilda Scott of Jamboree Abbey. Now, Justine, I've been there. It's the most fabulously beautiful place, a sort of green, mountainous place above the south coast of New South Wales. It's lovely. Yes, I really loved it. And I would say it's a hidden gem, Mm. and I plan on going back there. Um, I really wanted to go there for other reasons to do deep work. But when Eleanor, in her conversation, talked about, you know, is she a mountain person or an ocean person? I was like, oh, that's really provocative. And Turns out Jamboree Abbey is on the mountain. And while I was there, I was able to have a conversation with the abbess to ask her about spirituality and silence and even wild places as well. Now, she's been a nun for 53 years. This is Abbess Hilda Scott. And she's been at the monastery since 1991 and the abbess since 2019. So I knew that we were going to have a good conversation. Now, it turns out when you're at the Abbey on retreat, you will find in the little cottage or the hermitage that you're staying at, these medallions. And you can wear this around your neck if you want to more fully enter the spirit of silence while you're on retreat. And this sort of signals to other people you might run into that, you know, you're not there to make small talk. You're there to do some (laughs) kind of deep 
exploration and you just want to be given your space. Leave me alone. That's right. So these medallions say, let us offer one another the gift of silence. And I love this. Silence has a capital S. Mm. So I asked Mother Hilda, what is that gift? To offer each other the gift of silence is to give somebody a profound gift because what you're saying is I will allow you to be you in your own space without me intruding into your space. Now, you might not like being in your space in silence because if you're in your own space in silence, thoughts might come to you, past memories might come to you, In silence, you cannot run away. And yet, ultimately, if you face those things, you're the winner and you've got it through silence. If I interrupt your silence with my babble, my talk, then I rob you of the chance of having the fruit of facing that challenge. I noticed the other day, I was down in, I won't say which supermarket, but a supermarket. And for the first time I saw there was a sign up that said between 10.30 and 11.30 every Tuesday, this store will have a time of quiet. So it meant there's no music being played in this big supermarket just for an hour on a Tuesday morning. And we've had quiet trains from the Illawarra running up to Sydney forever. In all of that, I'm hearing the gift of silence is being given. So more and more people get a chance to face what's inside themselves. And you can do that far more easily when there's not all the noise around you. But Mother Hilda, we live in such a noisy world. And if you want to be silent, you really have to fight against it. It's interesting that you use the word fight, Justine. I wouldn't be inclined to use that word. I, I think rather we need to claim, not fight against it, because uh, fighting will get us nowhere. I'll only give you an ulcer. But what we need to do as individuals is claim silence for ourselves. What we need to do is put silence into our own lives If enough of us did that, well, silence would be the name of the game. It's so easy to put it. It's it's hard. In one sense, it's so easy. You've only got to turn the radio off on your way to work or do what a number of people these days do. Designate five minutes before you start your day to sitting, lying, standing in Silence. But Mother Hilda, I'm holding a phone right now yes, that is always claiming my attention, uh-huh. not claiming silence. And I have to admit, like you've just said, people don't want to be silence in case there are unbidden thoughts that come. Yes. Yes. So how do we find the strength to take that five minutes and to claim that silence? Hmm. Well, I don't know where you're listeners might be, or where you yourself are at this. At the end of the day, in my view, it's about relationship. 
And it's about relationship with God. Where do I find the strength to do anything? I've got no strength to forgive the person who's hurt me. i got no strength to find the energy to continually love. I don't always have the strength to go to somebody and say, I'm sorry. Neither do I have the strength to be silent and continue claiming what is good for me unless that comes out of the relationship I want to say that I have with God. But the truer thing is, unless that comes out of the relationship that God has with me, because God's always got a relationship with us, we just don't know it. It's when we get to know God, when we get to know Christ, there, there, we find the strength to actually switch our mobile phones off every now and then because ultimately now it's good for our soul and because when we shut off that noise, then the deeper, beautiful sounds of the love that God has for me get a chance to be heard by my soul. They can't be while the rest of it's going on. But I say again, you just can't do that because you want to do it. You want to do it and you ask God for the strength to do it. You've spoken about the significance of silence for spirituality. Mm. Tell me, does place have a role to play as well? Because we hear about the desert fathers and mothers. Mm. What were they looking for in those places? Well, there's two things about that, Justine. Ultimately, place should not matter. It shouldn't matter. I mean, take myself with me wherever I go. (laughs) So, hello, if I'm going to be silent, then I'm going to be silent no matter where I am, in the middle of a busy city, whatever. Secondly, when it comes to the desert mothers and fathers, the desert mothers don't get much of a mention, but they were equally as important as the desert fathers. Yeah, They went off into the desert in that eternal quest for God and they knew that there would be silence in that desert place. What they discovered when they went there was that, and this is a pretty well-kept secret, they discovered they couldn't do it. They discovered their huge need for God. They discovered that that which was calling them was far bigger than they were. In the desert, in that silence, they learned some marvellous life lessons, things like prayer. They discovered who God is. They discovered who they truly are. And the meeting of those two things Deepen the relationship. So eventually, they were very happy. St Anthony of the Desert, he's very happy to stay there. is happy to stay there. And the marvellous thing also about those desert fathers, you know, most of them were crooks. They were rogues. They were running away because they didn't want to be conscripted into the army. Are you running away from anything, Mother Hilda? <laughs> Not today, No. <laughs> no. In their running away, God caught up with them. 
and caught up with them through the wonderful medium of silence, but also in caught up with them because, again, they had to face themselves. Is there something in the idea that in a desert or in a wilderness space, it looks like you have nothing, mm. but in some ways at that point you can call upon God? Is that part of what we should learn from this? Yes, I think so, Justine. I think, again, there are two things about that. I think we should learn from this that no matter where we are, we can call out to God. Number two, we automatically assume that when we reach wildernesses in our lives, we know wildernesses in our life when a relationship breaks down and we don't know who we are or where we are and we feel like part of us has been cut to pieces. We know wildernesses when we're lonely We know wildernesses on Christmas Day when everybody's playing happy families and we haven't got a happy family to do that with. We face wildernesses when we lose jobs, when all our dearest dreams go down the gurgler and so on and so on and so on. We tend to think that they're the times when we're at our worst when nothing good could possibly happen. And yet it's those wildernesses, if we would claim them and use them properly, that bring out the very best in us. They show us strengths that we didn't know we had. They open us to people we would otherwise not have met. They show us that we're actually stronger than we think we are. But, hey... We don't know that unless we face a wilderness. Some people go off physically, get on a plane and go find a wilderness place. (laughs) And good luck to them. No doubt it works. We actually don't have to get on a plane. We just have to keep living our lives. That was Abbess Hilda Scott, or Mother Hilda. And I like Justine how she brought it back to the everyday. That mm. sense that someone doesn't necessarily need to kind of go off into the remote wilderness in search of silence or a spiritual experience. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's really helpful to keep thinking about that as I keep processing the lingering effects of lockdown. And I know I'm not alone. Um, I think it's really encouraging to hear that even if you can still feel hemmed in and not even just by lockdown, but just by life, that there can still be a sense of inner quiet and stillness and maybe even peace and freedom, but we just have to claim it. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. Thanks to Dr. Eleanor Limprecht and Mother Hilda at Jamboree Abbey. I'll post links to Eleanor's book, The Coast, as well as the article where she talks about ocean swimming. And meanwhile, if you think you might also need the gift of silence, you might also want to check out Jamboree Abbey. Next week. Some people are very inspired by religious conviction, and that can be a powerful mooring for their use of nonviolent action. And that it's possible to resist unjust structures and institutions without exhibiting anger, hatred, or non-acceptance of the other.